about to hear my conversation with their chief fixed income strategist, Dustin Reed. We talk all about the recent market reaction to bank failures, uh, how the Fed responded to that, as well as the impact on Canada, Europe, and get into some trades that they're conducting in the portfolio. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnurr, and I'm back with our chief fixed income strategist, Dustin Reed. Dustin, the last time we had you on the podcast was March 9th, which was just after the Bank of Canada meeting. Um, and I listened to the podcast in preparation for this one, and many, many things have changed. The one thing that I don't think has changed is you referenced keeping two hands on the steering wheel. That's clearly still the case. Um, we scheduled this podcast just after the Fed meeting uh, with the uh, foresight of getting your reaction to the Fed meeting, but I think we have to start with all of the preceding um, a couple of weeks and everything that had changed uh, between regional banks, uh, Credit Suisse. Uh, and just what impact that would have had on Jerome Powell uh, and the Fed going into that meeting. So maybe start by setting the table uh, for uh, what was contemplated, and then we can get into the reaction on the Fed. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks, first of all, for having me back. I always enjoy doing these these podcasts with you. And uh, it, it has been a, a wild couple of weeks, literally two weeks on the dot here from the last one. We recorded. Uh, we recorded on the ninth, of Thursday, like you said, uh, which is the day after the BOC, and it was kind of the first day where the um, the SVB news was really starting to, right. I would say, materially hit the tape, and people were getting concerned. We obviously saw it and discussed it on the team, but it was very early and wasn't really appropriate to um, really discuss it on on the podcast. You know, at that time, so we obviously went into that weekend, and uh, you know. Thursday and Friday, everyone knows kind of how how markets traded, and we had emergency measures from the Fed, uh, FDIC, uh, obviously, uh, and the Treasury, U.S. Treasury over over that over that weekend. And the Fed, the Fed, uh, the Fed measures. I mean, the, all the measures were very were very significant. Uh, obviously, a new Fed program that effectively allowed uh, banks to, uh, get paid on us treasuries at, at par, which is uh, massive, uh, a change in the discount window operations, which is very sacred for the fed. So that's, that was, you know, very much a, a big deal. And then effectively, uh, FDIC, you know, in, you know, tr- in, you know, trifecta, so to speak, um, guaranteeing, uh, eventually guaranteeing, uh, all deposits with, um, with SVB and obviously the other, the other bank out of, uh, out of uh, New York, I believe. So that was very significant. Amazing, amazing, right. How, uh, how different this is versus 07, 08, 09, right. the speed at which this got done, uh, the market reaction, and I shouldn't say market from a blanket perspective because each asset class I think is really, really interesting and we can definitely delve into that. Uh, but wow, what a difference I think in the reaction function overall from a, just a general risk sentiment perspective and global risk appetite perspective versus 08, 09, which uh, I'm sure many people uh, you know, invested through, traded through like myself. Uh, I was back in Chicago in those days and that was um, you know, a very, a very different reaction function. So I think 
you know, markets kind of kind of stabilized. Um, I mean, equities I think are really really interesting. You know, last you know that week, um, not not really falling out of bed at all. Right. Um, you know, versus 0809, and I think that's really really interesting. On the other hand, in my primary space, in the rates space, uh, that that has been uh, busy, and that would probably be the understatement of the year. Um, sure. As many people know, the VIX index, which is a good measure of volatility for for equities, on the uh, on the uh, rate side, a lesser known index is called the Move Index, uh, and a lot of people use the Move Index kind of like a rates volatility benchmark, like people would use for VIX uh, for for equities. Okay. And the Move Index uh, spiked to uh, levels uh, beyond February and March 2020 during the height of the panic during the early days of COVID. To just to give a little bit of uh, level set or background as to how volatile the rates market has been in the last couple of weeks since you and I were doing this podcast. So higher than three years ago, which is, and, and that was not a low level, I can assure you. So that that is exceptionally volatile. And so the two hands on the wheel story <laughs> actually became very, even more, even more appropriate uh, because sure. when you have that kind of volatility, you want to really, uh, generally not everybody, but I, I like to kind of shorten up my my uh, like my my outlook and my profile, be exceptionally nimble. Um, a lot of information coming at you. You're filtering a lot of information, trying to understand the salient points: what's important, what's not, what's driver, what's not, what's price, what's not, and and kind of go through all that. So like so the, with the move index really spiking, I think that you know it just kind of sets the stage of where you know my market, particularly if rates market, although we're looking at everything, uh, has has traded. And so the Fed's obviously been looking at that too. <laughs> sure. And uh, and obviously quite concerned. So one of the things I said to the team over the that first weekend and in the, in the couple of days after SVB was I think the Fed went all in on this with FDIC and Treasury because it feels it has a job to do and its its work is not done. And maybe the terminal rate is lower of the cycle is lower. Okay, fine. I can kind of get behind that, but clearly, uh, the 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 Fed feels it's got work to do and wants to finish. Particularly, you know, the labor market is very very tight, and inflation is uh, still running pretty hot. And I would say core is very becoming very structural at this point. I think that that's the Fed view, Fed's view as well, or at least the majority in the Fed. And uh, it it was not ready to disengage or disembark on the on the rate on the rate hiking cycle because of that, and so it obviously causes a real issue, right? Because you could say, well, the SVB story was because rates have been higher, and there was a maybe an ALM mismatch, sure. and you know that's up for debate. But um, you know, but you know, are more higher rates from the Fed really going to you know be appropriate at this point? You know, as I said to the team, you know, I, I mean, the term is a little bit aggressive, but I you know I think of it as separation of church and state, and mm. there is. The, there's one side of it. I mean, obviously, it comes together, right? It, eventually, at some point, but kind of from a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, and you're trying to separate church and state. And by what do I mean by that? I mean, there's the monetary policy side. So there's kind of the mandates, right? The inflation, prices, uh, the labor market, you know, and uh, you know that's running very, very hot in the U.S. And Fed has a has a mandate. That also has a mandate to f- effectively be the lender of last resort. Sure. Um, and that's kind of the other side of the separation of church and state, and you know, causing, 
you know, making higher rates and, and maybe causing a little bit more pain in the financial, the banking system and causing, uh, you know, the, the potential, I don't want to say they are causing it, but causing the potential or putting people in the direction of maybe more bank failures, um, you know, would seem to maybe go against that. So how do you, how do you manage that kind of, um, you know, that's that separation of, of those two, of those two functions. It's not easy. I, I definitely don't have all the an- answers. I definitely don't envy the Fed or other central banks that are having to, you know, to, ma- to manage that. Um, but the Fed clearly saw that uh, inflation is still high and Fed obviously did 25 um, at its meeting. Uh, but, you know, a, a couple weeks uh, before um, in Powell, I think we may have talked about this a little bit on the last podcast. Powell was in front of the semi-annual, in front of Congress for the semi-annual testimony, which is always scheduled as part of the Fed's remit from Congress, and was somewhat hinting, especially on his first day, the Tuesday testimony, I think, of um, maybe doing fifty at right. this meeting, right? And so that obviously did not happen, and I, I was very on board, at least until SVB uh, of. Maybe the median 2023 uh, Fed funds dot, so to speak, going up by f- maybe 50 basis points, and I was I was probably leaning towards that. Uh, and we ended up getting nothing, no change in this forecast round. This is a forecast round for the Fed um, in March versus uh, and versus the December versus the December forecast round. So the Fed clearly uh, wanted to get on with the rate hiking cycle for sure, uh, but. Change the narrative a bit, both I would say, or more than both, in in the statement and the press conference, and in the in its outlook and its summary of economic projections, the SEP. So the banking issue clearly had uh, an impact there, and you know we quote unquote only got 25 on the hike, and we saw no change in the outlook. The Fed's still at five to five and a quarter in terms of its expected. Fed funds range, and with the move most recently by the Fed, that would essentially put it one notch below that. Uh, and now, with Fed funds at four and three quarters to five, uh, is the is the targeted Fed funds range by the Fed. So it's essentially saying one more twenty five, and then and then done. And we'll see if that happens. The market's basically 50 50 of of whether at this point whether we'll get uh, that that done in uh, in May, and then obviously. Uh, the market, given the news, has has started to price in rate uh, easing a lot more aggressively uh, from the peak through the end of 23. Um, and hopefully, it's not stale. But you know, for for where we are right now, going into this podcast, markets price price about 75 basis points worth of easing uh, from the peak, uh, which is effectively May. So I can't even really say the back half of the year, but 75 basis points worth of easing from. Um, the peak uh, through the end, through the end of the year, and that you know, there's a lot of interesting kind of little nuggets. I think probably around that, you know, that thread in in and of itself. Anyway, so that's kind of the overview. I would say kind of going in and the change, um, and and then the Fed meeting. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of moving parts. I, I guess one more thing I would say is that you know we we had moved. Um, our long-held Fed funds forecast from five, five and a quarter to five and a quarter, five and a half after the PCE data. So that's maybe a little bit more hawkish than where the Fed is, but probably not as hawkish as where a lot of people were on the street. A lot of people were five and a half to three quarters, or even five and three quarters to six. Right. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not totally uncomfortable with that view. Um, I mean, it's really all about markets at the end of the day. But from a point estimate, where do I think the Fed's going? I'm not moving that at this point. I think that uh, there are some ra- there's some rationale that the Fed may need to do two more. Or or, or more. Um, a lot of it obviously hinges on credit, liquidity, the transmission mechanism of credit, any other 
banks in the woodwork, not only in the US, but globally. And we've seen news out of Europe uh, for obvious reasons. So uh, there's a lot to watch. There's a lot to digest, but uh, you know, I'm still kind of comfortable at that. And I, I wouldn't be, you know, being be totally fair if I didn't say this is our forecast and this is this is what I think and this is where we're leaving it and this is why. So anyway, that's that's where we're at uh, on that. But um, yeah, lots to take on there. So <laughs> let, yeah, how you yeah, take that. yeah. I'll take a, a few um, questions that I've noted here. Um, I guess uh, the the first one uh, with the the Fed um, and the terminal rate um, effectively not changing, dot plus not changing. What's your what's your view on the the concept that the uh, bank failures in the U.S. particularly are going to uh, really increase credit standards and that's going to help fight inflation meaningfully? Uh, yeah. And really, uh, I think that's somewhat priced in the market given the yeah. the easing that's uh, expected in the back half. That is. Arguably, the question of the of the quarter here. I the market would say that uh, credit conditions will tighten, small and medium sized banks will lend less, and credit will become more difficult to obtain, and that will cause a tightening in the economy uh, from financial conditions perspective and and otherwise, and, and and from a real a real perspective, and that does some of the Fed's work for it in terms of tightening. Financial conditions, um, right? So, I, I obviously have a lot of sympathy for that view. That could that could very well that could very well be the case. Um, I I am spending some time thinking, reading, talking to smarter people than I am around around this, uh, and I'm not totally convinced that that consensus view is going to be the way it plays out. Um, you know, Bill Dudley, uh, who used to be the former chief, uh, at least U.S. chief economist, maybe global, but I think U.S. chief economist at, at Goldman before he was president of the New York Fed and, and has been on the hawkish side the last two, three years. And, you know, to be fair, has been has been right, had a really interesting piece earlier in the week. And uh, he he kind of talked about why it's different now versus uh, versus 0809 and he cited a, a handful of things like uh, the system being a lot more a lot more prepared uh, the size of small and medium-sized bank lending at least the way he saw it households having delevered in the US not here in Canada per se but uh, households in the US have delevered a lot versus right. 0809 um, and if we don't see other, Banks in similar situations that you know, we this you know this this too shall pass so to speak, um, and I have I have some sympathy for that for that view as well, and I'm I am actually kind of leaning towards it uh, away away from kind of the way the market's trading it consensus, which would seem to suggest that <clears throat> inflation's not going away, credit will you know probably take a hit, but maybe maybe not be dire. Uh, and that the labor market can remain tight, and uh, the Fed maybe has some some more work to do, kind of maybe beyond beyond May. So I think that is that is the question. I you know I think it's a re- we're having the debate. You know, I sit on the Global Investment Committee, and we're having de- that debate within the Inve- Global Investment Committee. You know, within my you know our fixed income team here uh, broadly, and obviously you know I, I talk about a lot with. People that uh, you know across across the street who who help us a lot um, on ideas and thoughts and trades. So I think I think the jury is out, and I'm not trying to 
and not not answer the question. I mean, if I I, I am leaning towards that, things are maybe not going to be quite as bad as maybe the consensus is suggesting from a credit transmission mechanism. The caveat there is that I I just don't know every bank balance sheet in the U.S. and there are thousands. I mean, I just Great. don't I don't I don't know. Nobody knows, and uh, we could have two or three or four successive failures. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but we could have two or three or four successive uh, successive failures within a relatively short period of time. And obviously, that would be, depending on the size and severity, that would be not good for sentiment and would obviously cause more of an issue from a credit transmission mechanism perspective. So, you you have to basically put odds on that. You know what are the, what's the probability of that? Is right. that likely? Is that not likely? And, and, you know, and how do you trade it? So, uh, you know that that could that could very well happen. Um, you know, for now, I'm I'm not I'm not leaning in that direction. You know, in a month, we could be we could be very very we could be very very different. Sure, that's great. Um, I, I guess along those same lines, uh, and and given the recent reaction of the the curve in the the U.S. Yep. Um, and the predictive power that uh, the yield curve has had, particularly over the short term, mm-hmm. uh, over history, yep. uh, and I'd say that uh, Powell would acknowledge that. I, I think I've seen a comment from him uh, saying that there's a lot of explanation that comes from the short end of the curve. Mm-hmm. Are we effectively um, very very likely to see a recession in the back half of this year? Is that is that story now cooked? So. It's it's definitely possible, and the yield curve has generally been an okay predictor. Uh, the time lag, the time lag sometimes is a little bit short and a little bit long, but gen- generally something does happen. And sometimes you could say, well, there's an extraneous event and et cetera. But yeah, I think I think slower growth at a minimum is more likely than not than it was three four weeks ago. And that's right. obvious. One of the things, not to circle back to the Fed too too much, but one of the things that was interesting, kind of coming out of that. Um, Couple of things actually. One, I mean, obviously the the Fed funds forecast, the dots are always very very interesting. But there's they, the Fed also does inflation and growth forecasts as part of that quarterly update. And the Fed, um, the Fed is effectively with its growth forecast. The Fed is effectively saying that we're going to see very little growth for the remainder of this year in the U.S. And and how I derive that is when you look at the 23 real GDP number and you kind of put in a placeholder of, let's say, 3% annualized um, real growth for Q1, which is essentially the run rate. We're obviously recording this close to the end of Q1, so you don't have all the data, but we've got a lot of the data. Uh, To get to the Fed's number uh, for 23, assuming you plug in 3% annualized for Q1, you're effectively running at zero for Q2, 3, and 4. Right. So that would seem to suggest that the Fed has, or and probably the banking stuff made an impact, but maybe maybe before, but the banking stuff I'm sure had an outside impact. The, bank, the, the Fed is clearly thinking that, oh, wow, there's going to be a bit of a, a bit of a slowdown here. Where that also gets really interesting is the Fed is not yet uh, calling for any easing for this year, I mean, the market is the market's pricing right. about seventy-five basis points, but the Fed's saying we're holding. So you have a bit of a, a mismatch or a juxtaposition between where the Fed's calling growth to go going forward and what it's expecting to do with Fed funds. So that's kind of an interesting little tangent, and it all kind of comes back to your question. So I think the Fed, the Fed is implicitly suggesting that growth is going to slow pretty significantly. The second thing is during the press conference this week, um, 
Powell got, I think closer to the end of the press conference, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but the question is, do you still believe that we're going to see a soft landing? The Fed's clearly been engineering and, and kind of trumpeting that, yeah, we can do this. We can engineer a soft landing. This is the first time that I can recall for this cycle that uh, Powell has not answered or sidestepped the question and really didn't come out with some sort of uh, confidence around being able to keep two hands on the wheel, so to speak, and, uh, and, and, and engineer a soft landing. And I thought that's interesting. And so hmm. that, I mean, you, and then go to my answer from a minute ago around kind of, well, if you plug in 3%, then how do you get to, you know, how do you get to the, the answer on the other side of the equal side? Well, basically the equation essentially says zero for the Q2, three and four. So I think the fed might be concerned that the soft landing may not you know, may not be there. So I think that clearly the probability is is growing. You know, do I think we're going to see a hard landing or a recession um, later this year? I think it's I think it's clearly more likely than not. I'm probably, you know, as long as the employment numbers remain very very strong, uh, it is it is tough to to believe that. And a lot of this will circle back to credit banks uh, transmission mechanism uh, and credit credit av- availability and ease of credit uh, you know availability <clears throat> a lot of it will do that and you know again it's it's tough to tell if we see two three four bank failures of size in a relatively short period of time I think that clearly will change the dynamic here um, and bring us along one path if we kind of muddle along I think it Maybe creates another path and 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 skirts the the recession harder landing or hard landing uh, story. And I think it's I think it's tough to tell at this point. Um, my my guess here, and I'm watching claims. The weekly claims number I think is really really important. Right. Usually usually Thursday mornings, unless it's a holiday week. Um, so if the claims numbers and the NFP numbers remain relatively solid and employment strong and jobs are available to be had. And wages remain strong, and you know services uh, spending remains strong. Then it it is it is tough, and uh, it is tough to see a big a big recession. And the U.S. consumer, I mean, people say never count out the U.S. consumer, and I think that that's very fair. Consumption is uh, consumption is a very big portion of most economies particularly so in the US and the US is less sensitive because the average household is delevered a lot since 07, 08, 09. So the US is less sensitive to interest rates than we are here in Canada. So I'm not I'm not quite there yet that we're going to see a big recession uh, okay. or, or a hard landing, uh, but I can I can clearly be proven wrong and it wouldn't it wouldn't take a lot. Great. Uh, you referenced uh, the indebtedness of uh, Canadians, and maybe we'll turn our attention to Canada sure. uh, as a whole. Um, clearly, the the uh, recent events uh, in uh, Europe and uh, the U.S. have shifted yield curves everywhere, including Canada. Yeah. Uh, what's the What's your latest view on Canada? Uh, maybe the same sort of set of questions. What do you think of the growth versus inflation story and and uh, the path of rates uh, yeah. as priced in by the yield curve? I was, I was saying to uh, the team on our morning call this morning that uh, <laughs> that the Bank of Canada is probably the happiest uh, happiest bank <laughs> sure. happiest bank in the world here uh, in a way uh, because I think three weeks ago and you and I probably talked about it a couple weeks ago on the podcast but right. you know it was looking at um, a, fe- a U.S. economy that was not only ripping but in the point at the point of just 
clearly accelerating and a market that was pricing uh, a Fed funds terminal rate above five and a half with a Canadian policy rate of four and a half and, and probably, frankly, a bit concerned. And I think that this um, this is clearly uh, capped uh, the terminal market pricing for the terminal rate for the Fed and kind of brought things back into line because I'm sure the bank was having the internal discussion. Bank Canada was having the internal discussion around, oh my gosh, like do we need to do we need to come back and hike so we're not so far out of line right. with the Fed. So I think that that kind kind of answers part of the question anyway. Um, we had had a view that with the Fed looking like it would need to do more and get to maybe five and a half or maybe even beyond, that the bank at Bank Canada four and a half could be in some trouble in the and the currency Canadian dollar could be in some could be a bit of an escape valve. Um, right. You know the dynamics and to your very first question, you know things have changed. You know so the dynamics there have changed a little bit. And we were worried about maybe the the bank having Bank Canada having to come back and hike in April after taking a pause in March. That clearly looks a lot less likely now. And technically, technically, the market is pricing in, uh, I would say, maybe three basis points of easing for the April meeting. But that's really a function of, I would say, um, uh, by you know uh, the outcomes of you know the 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 expected value of of two different outcomes, i.e., nothing done or something terrible happening, and it's just an expected value in the middle. Right. Um, I think in cur- at the current state, I don't think hardly anybody expects the bank to cut uh, in April. I think the bank, you know, uh, that statement that we had kind of coming out of the the January meeting, the last forecast meeting for the bank, uh, where the, I think you know, I said the bank, I, I think the bank wants to be done, wants being the operative word, I think is very, very true. I think the bank wants to be done and the bank's on hold here. I do think that inflation is quite sticky domestically in Canada. Uh, I would even say structural, and I don't think the bank wants to be at four and a half for a couple of months and then ease rates. I don't think that uh, the bank would be comfortable with that at all. I think that if, as long as there's no more financial wobbles or banking system wobbles, you know, domestically in the U.S. or big ones globally, uh, the bank's on hold through at least the summer, maybe even Q3 and and into early Q4. Um, because I think that inflation is relatively sticky and the growth profile here is clearly not as strong, or at least wasn't sure. as strong as the US. Um, but there, there's clearly some uh some some undertones here that would suggest that uh that the bank needs to hold rates at at four and a half. Um I mean, core inflation is core inflation on an annualized basis is still running higher than where the bank rate is, right? Bank uh, core inflation is running um, around five percent, and and the bank rate is at four and a half percent. So, still, there's still an argument to be made from from some people would say that the bank policy is not hawkish enough. But um, I think for now, barring some calamity, domestic, U.S. or otherwise, that the bank's probably probably on hold here and and watching and and monitoring. Great. So, your it sounds like the outcomes at least haven't changed much. Uh, since our, our last podcast, um, where yeah. you, that was sort of your expectation uh, yeah. at that point in time as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe we'll travel over to Europe um, and sure. uh, and get your views on on the European economy. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the uh, UBS and Credit Suisse uh, merger uh, was headline news and and caused uh, lots of jitters. Yeah. Um, what's your view in Europe? Uh, inflation seems like it's even stickier potentially yeah, <laughs> than it yeah. is uh, in North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, what options do um, either BOE or, or ECB have? 
So it's 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 a tough situation in Europe for a number of reasons. We had UK CPI data this week, and it's back into double digits. I think right. ten point ten point four on the annual, and it's it's a big number. Uh, and the core numbers also on the annual also moving higher, uh, contrary to expectations, market expectations. So that that is clearly causing an issue, and we've had um, the Bank of England hiked uh, this morning. Uh, and we'll probably need to do more. And uh, you know, we had the ECB meeting last week. Um, it did it did fifty, and that was a. I mean, that's a whole conversation in, in and of itself, right there. But not sure. not an accident that we got the announcement about the uh, Swiss banking, you know, arranged arranged merger, so to speak, um, th- before the ECB meeting. So I think the ECB had confidence that it could continue on its rate hike cycle. Uh, path and do 50 as it had said that it wanted to do. And even the Swiss uh, National Bank was actually out this morning. And admittedly, it's been uh, a bit of a laggard even versus the ECB. Um, and it hiked by 50 this morning, but the the, the rate went from 1, 1% to 1.5%. So still quite a bit lower than where we are, you know, in terms of actual rates and policy rates in North America. Uh, but you get the point that, uh, again, it kind of goes back to the separation of church and state, right? I mean, these banks right. feel like, oh, wow, we've got, we've got a fair bit of work to do here. Things are sticky slash structural and we can't really, like right, right now, I mean, We'll see what happens in the next couple of months, but right now we're just not ready to prepare to give up that fight. But at the same time, we have to act as you know lender lender of last resort. And uh, so you see, that's a good a good example in you know BOE like England, uh, ECB, continental Europe, um, at least eurozone, Swiss, right? And you're seeing it you're seeing it in the US too, right? So I think that's that that and that was our view on the team, um, kind of coming out of that first weekend into into the you know, kind of the, the March break week, so to speak. Um, you know, how how will banks do this? Are they going to disappear? Are they going to cut? Um, you know, and I, you know, kind of that that separation of church and state. And okay, we've got to still have a job to do, but we're going to act as lender of last resort so we can continue in fact in in fact continue to do that job. I think it's been really important. But I think that um, you know we talked about this maybe the last podcast, maybe even the last two. The, um, the, the the forecast for the ECB have been changing, and Philip Lane, who is the chief economist and has a vote at the ECB, um, has really changed his tune over the last four, six, eight weeks, and even saw some some comments from him this week um, around. Uh, and so Philip Lane has been traditionally exceptionally dovish, uh, maybe probably top three, maybe the most dovish of of many people of of the twenty something person voting committee at the ECB and his tune has changed a lot in the last month or two and become a lot more center. And as, you know, as I think I said a couple of weeks ago, when, when everyone's been in these meetings or in a room, when you've got people and when the discussion starts off on a very extreme point in terms of a, a spe- left, right spectrum uh, in terms of outcomes, sometimes it's very, very difficult to kind of get to never mind the middle, but even the, uh, have the other, the other side of that, sure. of that discussion or the opposite of that discussion. I think, you know, the, the ECB meetings start off with 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 Philip Lane uh, giving his and his staff outlook projections, and for a long, long time, the past couple of years, they've been very, very dovish, and that's one of the reasons I think the ECB has been a little bit slow to the game. But that's changed, and uh, it's clear now that the ECB is a little bit more concerned from its own internal forecasts around inflation becoming structural. 
uh, particularly on the core side. And, um, you know, I think that the ECB is going to need to continue its hiking cycle. Uh, its rates, I think, are quite a bit lower than where they probably need to be given the current pace of inflation. Now, if you have a major risk-off event slash credit event, you can have a real impact on output and growth. And it does some tightening, as we talked about before. Absolutely. Right. And inflation can maybe come down on the back of that. But I think there's a pretty big gap here between where core annualized inflation is in Europe in the mid fives uh, versus where the policy it, policy rates are in low threes. And that, that is, that is a big, that is a big difference. And uh, there are a lot of uh, so-called hawkish people on, on the ECB that are exceptionally concerned that the bank is going to give up too early. Inflation is going to become ingrained and the bank will have to come back and do uh, a second round, which a lot of people would be very, very, uh, I would say, disappointed and or upset uh, about having having to do that. It, may, it makes for very tough policy from uh, just from, from a consumer perspective to always be, okay, they're on, they're off, they're on, they're off. And you sure. do, am I going to take a mortgage? Am I going to take out this line of credit? Am I... Right. You know, am I going to put money back into my business? You know, am I, you know, I, am I going to take out this car loan? Like, should I go back to school? I mean, it's very, very, very difficult for, you know, everyone. You know, everyone listening has you know made these these decisions in life, and it's you know, if you have uncertainty, it's very, very difficult to make very big decisions. And I think, I think, you know, a lot of central banks have learned from the '70s, particularly the Fed. You know, back and forth, back and forth, and are trying to smooth out the curve and trying to get to that that sweet spot where. Um, you're you're taking away accommodation uh, without absolutely ruining the economy and not necessarily having to make big changes on the other side or coming back uh, and continuing maybe what you didn't finish. So it's it's a challenge, uh, but I do think that the the inflation story in in Europe is is very sticky. Whether that's you know, ECB, you know, EMU, or, uh, or or the UK story, I think that uh, it's it's going to be it's going to be a while here and this higher this higher for longer from a from an inflation perspective, and you know, as you know, we never believed in this transitory right. uh, uh, narrative on on inflation. We're, we're well beyond that now. Clearly, um, maybe we'll transition to uh, what uh, what you've been looking at within the portfolios of the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, how have you been uh, trying to implement some of those views uh, tactically, and, and give us some examples? So there's been uh, a lot. Um, we were, um, I couldn't really talk about it during the last, last, um, podcast cause we were just in the middle of putting it on. I don't think we had it quite on yet, but we really, um, at least two weeks ago, uh, we really liked what we would call receiving, uh, the front end of the curve or buying, uh, buying the front end of the curve. Uh, we thought right. that rates had, uh, particularly Canada actually had, had peaked. Um, and so we had, uh, we had done we had done that, and uh, we you know sometimes sometimes lucky, sometimes smart, probably a little sure. bit of both. But that <laughs> sure. that that kind of Take worked it. out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that kind of worked out. So we're actually out of that already, and this is what I mean okay. by two two hands on the wheel. Um, yeah. um, in terms of being very tactical and very nimble, and this is generally not um, what I would call you know, like mutual fund asset manager type type trading um, with that short term. But I think with the volatility and um, yeah, extreme volatility and, and kind of the obvious of what's happening in the U.S. Uh, and globally, you really need to be nimble and, and not be married to 
a view for a long time. If, if the circumstances clearly change intraday, then you should change your view intraday if you're comfortable there and the team is comfortable with there. So that was one trade that we had on and to be fair, is probably uh, gone. I mean, we've been looking at it in, in and out maybe once or twice uh, since uh, since then. Um, but we, we did have that initial one, which was, which was great. I think, you know, the volatility in the move index, which we referenced before, uh, it's, 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 it's exceptionally volatile. So that's not necessarily where we want to be spending a huge amount of our time unless we have, ex- I would say for the short end of the curve, extreme confidence, which we did a couple of weeks ago. And I think our PMs did a really great job managing, managing that. You know, if you believe uh, secondarily, I guess, if you believe that you're getting closer to the end of the cycle, which I, I think we are at least for a while, we'll see how inflation behaves then right. arguably, and you kind of alluded to it a couple minutes ago. Um, uh, the steepener trade, the so-called steepener trade should be coming into vogue. And we right. are, you know, we like that. Uh, you know, we've been looking at it for a long time in late last year. We thought it was early. We didn't do it. A lot of macro uh, funds and, and multi-strat funds got into it um, late last year and probably, you know, probably got, probably got chopped up uh, on, on that trade a little sure. bit. Um, but I think we're getting closer to the end of the cycle and I'm more comfortable um, one, one trade I like a lot is, uh, you know, kind of tens, thirties steepeners, uh, or maybe even fives, thirties steepeners, pretty comfortable legging in, legging into that. Obviously there are a lot of risks around those types of trades. One would be the banking story. If we do see two or three or four failures within a relatively quick succession, uh, succession that, that would, that would be a problem for a steepener trade, in my opinion, um, at least at, at that part of the curve. Um, and obviously, geopolitics also plays a lot. I think um, th- th- there is so much news flow, it is it is uh, difficult to filter at all. It is, it is not uh, totally lost on the team that there's still a war going on in Europe. Uh, there's a potential for that to escalate. Uh, and, uh, there's been some stuff over the last few days that is potentially really, really ugly. And, uh, if that, if that were to escalate, then that could also be a very risk off type, uh, environment. And, uh, and maybe that steepener trade may not perform well, but from a fundamental perspective, you know, we are getting to the end. I think we're getting closer to the end of the cycle probably. And, and there's some potentially some, some value in that, but, um, you know, the team looks at everything and, you know, we kind of weigh with probabilities around the geopolitics side, the banking side, and, you know, where are we comfortable? What else do we have with the portfolio, obviously? And I think that's, you know, how we obviously manage a portfolio. It's not just, um, it's not just, you know, alpha generating per se with each trade, but it's, you know, within a portfolio management context and trying to have the right limits of risk on given where, um, not risk on, but the level proper limits of risk, uh, on during, you know, throughout the portfolio, um, just to make sure that uh, we're taking into account the the current current pace of volatility and and, and exceptionalism with with volatility. Um, so that's that's another one. I think um, you know the Japan trade, which we've had on for a long time. Uh, you know, if I'm being totally fair, has not. Uh, although we've done very well on it and did very well on it, particularly in December last year, hasn't gone our way the last couple of weeks. Um, we're looking at the Japan trade a little bit differently now, uh, for in a, in a few ways. One, uh, first of all, it's not the the ten year yield is not bumping up against the ceiling anymore, the yield curve control ceiling. It's trading a little bit more in the middle. So even if BOJ Bank of Japan um, 
amended its policy, does that necessarily mean that uh, 10-year yields would would spike higher? And I think the at a minimum, the probability around that has has decreased. And I think that Japan is trading a little bit more a little bit more within the context of global yields and a little bit less as a one-off. And so we're looking at that uh, duration, that short duration, uh, as uh, more part of the overall portfolio from a duration perspective and saying, okay, are we comfortable with this amount of overall duration in the portfolio as opposed to saying there's everything and then there's the Japan trade. Um, right. And so we're kind of changing the framework uh, and the lens with which we look we look at that. Um, I still like the trade. You know, I, I do still like the trade. I think that yields will head higher. I think Japan's got a, a lot of room to make up. I do think they will change the policy, although you know you could argue again that th- that might have less impact than it would have a month ago when it was bumping up against the ceiling. The ten-year right. yields were bumping up against the ceiling, but I still like that trade directionality. I do think that inflation is running at, at a relatively decent clip for Japan uh, versus historics, and the Shunto wages were. Probably a little bit higher than consensus. Probably uh, wage increase, um, no, not as high as maybe the BOJ would have liked to automatically do something on yield curve control. But clearly, uh, total total comp was up three point eight percent. Base wages were about two point three and a half, two point three five of that three point eight. Um, so the base wages are not um, huge. Although I think the Bank of Japan probably would have liked to see that closer to three. Uh, but total wages up 3.8 is a big number anywhere, really, uh, sure. and it's and it's for Japan given kind of where they've been the last two plus decades. It's obviously a big number. It's the biggest I think in 30 or 40 years in terms right. of a one-year increase, and we're seeing some larger firms increase wages more than that, more than that number. So there's clearly some a little bit of wage frothiness there. So that kind of all circles back to okay, what do we think on Japan yield curve, BOJ, and obviously at the end of the day, you know, we're here to make money for our clients and what does it mean for that the BOJ trade so and and the JGP trade. So I still I still like that, but we're looking at it slightly differently through a, a different lens and framework now, which I think is I think is the right thing to do. Um, I think the dollar story is also really interesting here, US dollar story. Uh, it, it, I mean, clearly during periods of massive risk off, the dollar is generally bid against most things, except maybe the right. yen. Um, uh, you know, but now that we are potentially at the end of the rate hiking cycle and the market starting to look through and price in some significant easing again, particularly for the later later part of 23, there is definitely an argument to be made that the dollar, uh, the bullish US dollar story is over or coming to an end. And so we're spending a fair bit of time around that. We've seen dollar yen move quite a bit lower here in the last couple of weeks. Um, and and the dollar uh, sold off against a lot, although not necessarily CAD. Uh, dollar CAD's held relatively uh, relatively steady, which of course is the one that we pay the most attention to because that's our, our biggest exposure. But from a broad dollar perspective, I think there's uh, merits to the, the 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 long dollar story maybe coming to uh, a bit of an end on on the rates story. Now again, the big caveat would be if there's a big event risk and risk off right. or a credit a credit issue. Um, you know, I, I probably wouldn't want to be short short dollars in in the very short term. Um, right. 
but uh, but barring that happening, I think that you can see uh, the dollar the dollar move. So that's a few trades that we've got on and things that we're you know we like and we're looking at uh, in you know in the portfolio uh, from a from a macro perspective. And there are there are definitely there are definitely more. I guess one more I would mention maybe just uh, really quickly if we've got time is. Um, We've been rotating on the European exposure side. So been rotating a little bit out of the German trades. Short, not always, but often been short, uh, short the short end of the German curve. So, so prices lower, yields higher, which is generally moved in our direction in German twos and German fives. And we've rotated that a little bit away from uh, Germany into France based on um, the uh, the pension uh, debate there. Uh, so, right. for those that don't know. Uh, France, Macron has been trying to raise the uh, retirement age, and it's gone over very, very badly. I think 75% of the population does not want that raised. It uh, was unable to kind of get it through uh, Parliament. Uh, basically, did a one-off, um, and uh, and then there were some uh, crisis uh, uh, votes of, of no confidence in the government, which he barely, barely passed. Anyway, that, obviously, that doesn't. That's not great news for. French um, for French uh, paper, so we we had a view that uh, French paper could widen uh, versus the German benchmark. So we've rotated a little bit of that short uh, that we would have had in Germany to uh, to the French side, um, and that's gone a little bit in in our direction so far. But it's still it's still pretty early days. So that would be kind of maybe the last one on the uh, on the macro side. There are others, but uh, you know we could be here all day. I'm sure. Uh, certainly, uh, it's been a, a busy time. And, and Dustin, thank you so much for spending the time to walk through uh, your views on things and what you're doing in the portfolio. Uh, I always find these conversations to be very enlightening. Uh, this one uh, clearly hits that mark as well. So Dustin, thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. Look forward to the next one. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 